0: They're coming to get you, Barbara.
1: You're tearing me apart! I'm Charles Foster Kane!
0: You're at heart a sentimentalist.
1: Cult Movies Podcast, where we talk about underseen films, lesser-known gems, and unrecognized masterpieces, maligned and panned by audiences and critics alike. This is episode 15, and I'm very pleased to introduce my guest from Salem Horror Fest, Kay Lynch. How are you, Kay? Hey, I'm doing great. Thanks so much. Uh, This, uh, I feel like this is a long time coming. You and I actually speaking to one another, um, just because you've been so supportive uh, over the past, I feel like, year- uh, when I first started uh, Neon Badges and then all that went to shit, um, you were you were a very kind ear to bend and a uh, shoulder to lean on during all that BS. Uh, so I thank you for that. And then uh, being able to uh, check out uh, the fest this past year uh, virtually, which I thought, I mean, y- you tell me how you think it went, but I thought it went swimmingly well uh as far as i could tell as as a participant you know just a viewer it seemed like it went like uh no no hiccups at all
0: well thank you that means a lot it was uh, a pretty big pivot for us um you know obviously going from live uh in salem during october is a much different vibe to my basement, <laughs> um, <laughs> but, uh, but it did go over well, really well. I was really happy with how it turned out. Um, you know, we had to learn a lot and uh, um, but, you know, we used the same platform that criterion and arrow uses. So at least, you know, I think the biggest concern was going to be the tech and the reliability. And so thankfully that was all uh, fine, but yeah, it, it, one of the great things that, came out of this is so when we do the event um you know in salem during october as big of a reputation that salem has around the world it's actually a really tiny city so we only have um three boutique hotels actually a new one just went up um right in time for no one to come (laughs) um but we have we only have a small handful of boutique hotels and they um the room inventory sells out so quickly. Um, So unless you're planning ahead, it can be really difficult to actually get to Salem unless you're willing to stay, you know, in some of the surrounding cities, um, that a lot of people aren't familiar with. Sure. And so, um, you know, whether whether or not, uh, you know, so if you hear about the fest in like August or something, it's and, and you have to travel to come, it's really difficult to, to make that happen. It's also can be really expensive to fly to Salem or you know fly to Boston and get a hotel and all that stuff adds up. And so um, by going virtual, it was a really great opportunity to reach people who um, either you know otherwise might not be able to attend or you know won't be able to for some time or or whatever the case may be. We were able to reach people all over the world, and um, it allowed us to. You know double down on the indie features a lot more too, because um you know live it can be a little more difficult to get some people to come see films that they have absolutely no reference for, right. um especially you know stay in October is like a mardi gras vibe mm-hmm. um so it allowed us to really focus on our filmmakers even more so and um and it's something that we're gonna just lean into even more this year.
1: Oh, that's really cool. So, uh, you're planning on offering a, a virtual thing again this year?
0: Absolutely. Um, yeah. So, as far as I'm concerned, it's uh, we're virtual is forever going to be a component of the festival. Very cool. Um, you know, we're looking. Salem is starting to loosen some of their uh, restrictions and guidelines. Well, they're in line with the um, the state, sure. um, the COVID, the COVID guidelines. Um, which, you know, I'm kind of holding my (laughs) breath, I'm not entirely confident in the direction it's going, but keeping an eye on that, if it does look like it'll be safe, I would like to do some kind of live component. It won't be anywhere near what we are, you know, used to doing, um, but we're just keeping an eye on that and, and hopefully, um. Hopefully, we can get back to normal. I mean, you know, Salem's a, a really big tourist um city, and we are very fortunate to be able to have pulled off the festival, the virtual platform. There are actually a lot of businesses in town that don't have that luxury, right? And so, you know, we're we're rooting for them, and you know, the, the city is extremely reliant on, on the tourism dollars. So,
1: yeah,
0: um the sooner we can get over this pandemic the better
1: yeah it's uh I was really curious to see you know when when this all hit kind of all the festivals of course last spring a lot of the festivals just canceled outright uh just of course because they didn't have time to prepare for any sort of backup plan and then the festivals in the fall that uh started you know kind of almost led the charge uh yours included uh by doing a virtual thing for then all the festivals that happen, you know, uh, around this time of year or uh, in the spring, uh, for instance, the Omaha Film Festival where I am is going on right now, of course, virtually. Um, so it, you know, it's it's, you know, it it is um, sad and um, depressing because you know a lot of these places you you can't attend in person, but uh, I love the fact that now a lot of us uh, people, you know, that live, for instance, in the middle of the country where they're, you know, most of these cool festivals are, you know, happening on the coasts, we're able to attend now or like, you know, down in Texas or whatever, we can attend now virtually. So, um, you know, I, you know, I, I, like I said before, I just thought uh, Salem Horror Fest went off so well and it seemed like it was so well received. And so, uh, you know, for that, I'm I'm just so happy for you that it all went well. Um, Thank you.
0: I appreciate that.
1: Now, uh, for anyone listening to this uh, show for the first time, this is what happens. Uh, this show is born out of Danny Perry's book series called Cult Movies. Danny is and was uh, a, a film critic. And he has three books called Cult Movies. And so each episode we are discussing, I open it up to the guest. I say, pick a movie from the book and uh, we will discuss that movie. And then on the second half of the show, we will uh, offer up pairings or recommendations based on that initial movie. Uh, And so, like we begin every show, Kay, how do you define cult movie?
0: Cult movie. Well, first of all, I really. (laughs) <laughs> I really like the term cult movie, um, because when it comes to horror, the horror genre, actually, the thing that f- creeps me out the most is anything uh, related to actual cults. <laughs> so whether or not you know um, they're you know f- you know fictional stories, or even more so if they're real stories, um, I think there's just something truly disturbing uh, about the concept. But as it pertains to cult cinema. Um, I have a pretty liberal definition. Um, I think it's any film that is underseen, which you know is kind of a loose term. It's hard to you know how do you determine what is underseen. Sure, but it's the type of movie that you have to tell someone about, mm. and it's the type of movie that you want to be there for someone's first time experiencing mm. it. Yeah, I think it's there's this sort of underground element to it. The film feels like a secret, or feels like um, like a secret handshake. It's yeah. sort of this film. Once you and someone else has seen this film, you both know now know something mm. that other people don't. And it's whatever is compelling or interesting about that film. Um, you know, there are so many cult films, and a lot of them are very different. I think the thing that unites them all is there's something weird about it at least in, there's just something kind of off um off center about what the film is doing either in the filmmaking or the story itself um you know it's it's so, something that you don't get often in sort of the mainstream um marketplace
1: yeah i like it off center i i love that um and the movie uh we're talking about this week i feel like um, you know especially at the when it came out it totally off center. Um, and so well why don't you go ahead and introduce uh, that movie and maybe why you picked it
0: Sure um so Night of the Living Dead I think it is the most important horror movie of um possibly of, of all <laughs> horror cinema. I just think that it is in some ways, kind of like Shakespeare in the sense that, you know, you can produce Hamlet and put it on stage. Um, but there are so many interpretations of that story that you can set it in a different time, or you can um, set it in a certain industry or uh, a setting. And I think with Not the Living Dead, it created its own genre it, it essentially created the zombie genre and ever since as far as i'm concerned every zombie movie that has ever uh, been made is essentially a reinterpretation of this film yeah and um they all deal with in some way the theme of um, a communal breakdown um You have different characters from different backgrounds forced together in a situation where they have to either work together to survive or um, let conflict eat them alive. Mm. And um, so the story is uh, really simple. Basically, the um, unburied dead are rising. Uh, for some you know, mysterious reason. And there are a small handful of people who have taken shelter in a farmhouse um, as they try to figure out what is going on. And so the central conflict amongst the humans is essentially, what are we going to do to survive this? Um, and the different characters have their own different ideas of what they should be doing um, as they... F- try to understand what is happening to them. Um, But then of course, you know, the the science fiction element of it is the zombies themselves. Um, Why why are they coming back to life? Um, This is the first example, the first portrayal of um, a, a, a zombie creature that eats human flesh. There had been, you know, zombies have been around um, cinema history, but they're kind of a different, um, sort of take. They're kind of almost like creepy <laughs> sleepwalkers mm-hmm. or they're, um, you know, there's a voodoo aspect to it, or, you know, there's been a few different, uh, portrayals of what a zombie is, but George Romero, uh, very specifically created these creatures that are, uh, have hunger for human flesh and from this film spawned of course the rest of his uh dead um franchise and hundreds of of others
1: this do you remember the first time you ever saw this movie
0: no i mean honestly no it's it's the type of film because uh you know the film fell into public domain um it's in so many other films right. <laughs> it's like it's just, uh, you know you don't have to have any licensing to, to use it and so i feel like this film is just has been sort of the wallpaper of mm, yeah. um you know cinema ever since it's just always there in tv uh um in, in film on uh, you know within the TVs right. or the films um, inside, but also the movie itself just forever in syndication. You know, the UHF stations could play it as you know to the heart's content. Right. Um. So I had always just seen it around, watch parts of it here and there. Um. I, I honestly can't remember when I first saw the film, really from beginning to end in its entirety, while really kind of concentrating on <laughs> the story itself right um but over over time the more i watched it um the more i i've come to appreciate it oh totally
1: yeah i i feel like uh you know when i was a little kid i, I would have seen bits and pieces excuse me you know on you know like you said uhf stations or you know maybe it was on up all night uh you know with Rhonda. At the uh, what's her, what's her face on, on the USA network or, you know, oh, st- it's <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yes. Uh, but like, I remember the very first time I saw this, uh, front to back was, uh, I was doing a sleepover at my friend Ricky Jones's house. And, uh, whenever we do sleepovers, you know, we do, you know, stay up as late as we could. And we, you know, we'd rent, you know, three, four, five horror movies. And, um, and so this was one of them, uh, and I think I was maybe I would have been, um, 11 or 12. Um, but it, yeah, I, I, I'll just never forget sitting in his basement watching this. Of course I wasn't, I wasn't really scared. Uh, but I, something I could tell there was something special about this, uh, movie, uh, whether it was historically special or I, I you know, I, I it's definitely back then, but even now I couldn't put my finger on it. Uh, I just knew that it stuck with me. Um, and then of course, you know, since then it'd become a perennial, uh, favorite, you know, in October. Uh, but then, you know, as I got to, you know, in, into my thirties and really started getting into cinema, um, you know, really picking it apart and, learning about it. And, uh, it's just, I mean, for God's sakes, it's one of my favorite movies of all time. Uh, I think I agree with you. I think it is the most important horror film of all time. Um, and people, you know, can argue all they want about it, but you know, that's what I think, uh, just because look where we are now in 2021, uh, with TV shows and other movies that are direct descendants of this movie, of these uh, group of friends who just decided, let's try to make a movie. And that's crazy. Uh, Okay, before we really get into it, let me read uh, a little something from Danny here from Cult Movies 1. And this kind of pertains to uh, why it gained that cult status back then. So Danny says, Columbia turned the picture down because it wasn't in color and AIP rejected it because it has no romance and has a downbeat ending but the Walter Reed organization agreed to distribute it and soon it was playing on the bottom of the bill in drive-ins and neighborhood theaters showing triple features. If ever a picture became a hit because of favorable word of mouth this is it. Horror aficionados stumbled upon it in a rundown theaters on New York's Forty-second Street or in drive-ins in the sticks, and soon spread the word that they had discovered a masterpiece of the genre. Critics started tracking down prints, and their reaction was equally enthusiastic. Living Dead had risen out of its coffin and was suddenly in demand all over the country. Lines formed around the block, and the picture quickly became uh, quickly made its uh, quickly made its cost thirty times over. Art houses booked it, film societies, and then the Museum of Modern Art. When people had seen it several times, Night of the Living Dead* moved to the midnight circuit, where it attracted a new audience as well as repeaters. And I believe I have seen this at a midnight movie at this uh, real shithole uh, theater that is no longer around uh, here in Omaha. But that was a, uh, you know, that was that was a trip uh, because you know I was. Uh, just a beat to hell print um but again i knew it was a special thing being able to see this movie on the big screen uh have, have you ever seen it uh on the in a theater
0: you know uh well we we screened it in our first year in 2017 okay Um uh, but i was producing the event so i wasn't you know sitting from right. beginning to end um but other than that no
1: yeah, it, uh, you know, I, I would love, because you, you have the Criterion disc as well, correct? Yes. Okay, so uh, I think uh, you'd probably agree with this. Like, that is, and I'm not one to be like, oh, this is a must-own disc, but this is a must-own disc. This is, like, the definitive version of the film, and it is, like, in pristine. I mean, it looks gorgeous, and so to be able to see, uh, you know, that sort of quality of this film projected on screen would be a, a real treat. Um, but like uh, before we started recording, like I was telling you, so I, you know, I, I've watched this, you know, four times in the past year alone. Uh, but last night I watched it with the commentary again, uh, which was, I don't know, my third or fourth time around with the commentary. And, the, and it's the original commentary from 1994 with, uh, with uh, Romero and, and Hardman and Marilyn Eastman and John Russo. Um, And it's like the, it's my favorite commentary because you're literally just sitting there with a group of friends uh, reminiscing and it just totally hanging out. And it is so comforting and so fun just to sit and listen to them gab. Uh, It's really, really something special.
0: Absolutely. I mean, you know, this film was, Uh, entirely a grassroots production they produced this themselves um you know they had never made a feature film before they hustled to even get the money to buy the equipment you know to um to, to produce it and uh filmed it in their hometown and you get that sense listening to the commentary just you know they were a bunch of young men and women just trying to figure it out as they went along in the fact that the end product um you know not only just it's kind of like a perfect storm of so many things happening yes. with this film that no one could have ever um planned it to end up the way it has um but that said, it's still an incredibly artful film. Like it, it, everything in it is still very intentional. Um, and so from the uh, the shots, the way it's edited, um, you know, there's just so much to it. And so to hear them talk about it, you, you just get the sense that they were friends then, they're friends now, and they're, you know, still kind of, I don't want to say surprised, but just kind of gobsmacked of like, well, here we are, however <laughs> many years later, still talking about this film that to us is a perfect film, but to them was just uh, you know friendly chaos.
1: Yeah, well, it's so fun listening to like George uh, sitting there and he's you know being self-critical about all oh, you know the 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 two zooms aren't you know timed equally or or you know that was a really uh, choppy jump cut. Or, you know, and and the rest of them are like, oh, George, it's fine. You know, look, look where we are now. Like, look how far because because by at the time they recorded this commentary, it was uh, like just recently it happened. Some like big like uh, anniversary thing, uh, like the zombie jamboree or something, I think is what they called it, um, had just happened. And like they just these thousands of people that they they had met who had like collected, you know, they were all so shocked that, oh my gosh, this is like, even, you know, 30 years later at that point, it was like how, how crazy it is that this tiny thing that we just decided to go out and, and try to do on our own, uh, turned out to be this huge thing. And, you know, I, I just, I, I love the story of, uh, you know, uh, um, was it Russo and Hardman and uh, uh, George had a company called the latent image where they're like just shooting commercials for local businesses or politicians. And, you know, they're shooting industrial movies for, for, uh, you know, other businesses. Um, And so like that, that was their business. And, but again, like they, they are all just kind of self-taught, like we're going to do this thing. And, you know, when, You know, when I'm talking to somebody about indie film, I always refer to Night of the Living Dead as the original indie film. And I understand like indie film has, you know, dates back before, you know, the the 1900s. Uh, But like this is the for me, this is kind of like the big the first big indie film where these people just went out and did their thing. Um, and it's one of the most inspiring things in the world. And I mean, I personally, I can't think of another movie uh, that inspires me to get off my ass and just uh, go do the thing, make the thing, create the thing. Uh, there's no other movie that makes me do uh, want to do that than Night of the Living Dead, uh, because these these people are just so inspiring because they went out and did it.
0: Yeah, and it. You know, launched an incredible career out uh, of George and, and all the films that uh, followed. Um, you know, there have been, they evolved in, in many different ways. He tackled all sorts of themes. They all had some sort of social uh, commentary embedded in them to, you know, one degree or another. Um, and it's just to, to see the trajectory from from you know starting from this film is just uh truly incredible and all the films that have come since you can still see the dna in this in this movie.
1: Oh, for sure. Now, when you uh watch this uh you know anymore, do you still or have you ever even uh you know found it to be shocking um or uh you know frightening in any way?
0: Absolutely. I mean, the zombies themselves don't really creep me out. Um, it's the it's the human element. It's oh, yeah. sort of the 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 fact that they're um, trapped in a house, and it just feels like a gunpowder mold. You know, there are there are explosions, um, right. <laughs> but just sort of the the conflict of uh, essentially these two men, um, and sort of realizing that they're playing with fire. In that, if they don't figure it out um you know one of them can ruin it for all of them and so um i think for me it's just the the tension is really about the problem solving in in the house and um and the sort of the role that the media plays mm. and oh, yeah. how they make the decisions um you know i think is also very relatable you know <laughs> through <laughs> Uh, you know obviously the pandemic is uh, a very um, top of mind uh, sort of um, element but anything happens you know, a terrorist attack or right. uh, a school shooting or something you know and, and, and then you have the TV there to um, you know to, to to witness something that is happening through the media and of course the media itself is a lens. And in this movie, it kind of is repeating what the military wants people to hear. And it's not necessarily they're more focused on creating the appearance that they're in control. Um, and so, you know, the, the further you go into this movie, you realize how alone they are, Mm -hmm. that no one's really coming to save them and in fact, You know when Ben does survive the night the people who are are supposed to be you know the saviors in this situation kill him um so you know it's, it's it's really depressing um but I think it's that sort of futility for me that's most terrifying I mean you have characters making decisions um that directly lead to their own death um and some characters where their deaths are almost kind of random um so this sort of uh inevitability mm. <laughs> to their you know to to, to all of their fate um so walking away from this movie you got to think like well what was what could have they what could they have done yeah,
1: yeah.
0: um i don't know that there was a solution
1: yeah, it uh Dan, in his essay Danny makes an interesting point that I have never thought of. Now, uh do you see is, is there a bad guy in this movie and if so who is it?
0: I think it's all of, I think there are flaws to all of them. Um if there I think that the most sort of obvious villain is um
1: harry harry right
0: Uh, yeah um but they all make poor decisions um ben who is you know clearly made out to be the you know the hero um punches a (laughs) woman in the face (laughs) right you know it's he's not the greatest i mean um but but they are all characters under a great deal of stress and um very few options to move forward so you know you can kind of understand to some degree um you know the pressure that they're under right um but i mean harry is definitely the character i like the least and (laughs) the one i would want to punch
1: yeah yeah well you know you you think about uh this group of people and uh, like you said they're under just such great pressure and such great stress that no one uh would uh, be able to think 100% clearly or rationally in this type of situation. Um, and you know, I, so anyways, going back to, to what Danny had said, he said, uh, uh, Harry is clearly made out to be, you know, kind of our, our villain of the story, but you know, he kept urging everybody, we need to stay in the basement. That's where it's going to be safe. We got to stay in the basement. Uh, but Ben said, no, we're going to be safer upstairs. We need to stay upstairs, stay together. Um, and uh, what happens? They stay upstairs and they don't stay together and everybody dies. And Ben ends up, where does he retreat to? The basement <laughs> where <laughs> Harry had argued, this is where we need to be. Um, and so I, I for some reason that, you know, I've seen this movie, you know, two dozen times and for some reason that never clicked where I was like, Oh my God, he fought the whole time not to be in the basement and he ends up in the basement. Uh, Of course, ultimately he ends up dying anyways. But, uh, I thought that was really interesting and that there, there isn't a clear, I mean, Harry, obviously, I mean, he's the asshole. Um, and he's the most unhinged, And it just so happens that he seems like, uh, you know, a real piece of shit white guy going up against, uh, you know, this kind of strong, heroic black man, um, which, you know, any decent human being uh, will know who to root for in this situation. Um, uh, Yet, uh, we have to, and again, I understand this is just, you know, uh, this is fiction, this is... uh, is it fiction though? Uh, this is a movie we're talking about. Um, uh, who, who are we really, who do we really relate to? And, uh, you know, how would we, um, act in this sort of situation? Um, and, you know, the story goes that they didn't cast Dwayne Jones, uh, because of the color of his skin. He was just the best actor for the job when he came into audition. And, um, and that's the story they stick to. And, uh, you know, uh, if that's what they say, then, that, you know, that's what I believe. Um, and you know, when he was on set, he said, and you, you would brought it up where he strikes, uh, Judy O'Day, uh, Barbara, and, um, he had fought against, they said, I don't want to do this. Um, because I mean, he, he knew what it would look like a black man striking a white woman, you know, in the late sixties, uh, uh, but, you know, they did it anyways, and it has a huge impact. Now, probably not uh, the type of impact uh, it would have had singing for the first time back then. Um, but anymore, it's like <laughs> watching a man strike a woman. Um, and, I, you know, personally, I hardly uh, think about he's the lone black man because nothing in the story I feel like makes it about race. Right.
0: Not overtly. Um, You know, the fact that he is a black man, you know, in this situation, you know, we kind of bring our own sort of knowledge of, you know, of the time and um, of the social dynamics Mm. that would come in this situation. Um, so, and, and I know that the, the, you know, George and, and like you had mentioned Dwayne, they were aware of it too. It might not have been the intention or the purpose, um, you know, to cast him in that role, but they were aware by casting him that it is going to alter sort of the dynamic, at least in the minds of the audience. And so, as you had said, Dwayne advocated for certain things (laughs) to, to change. I mean the the original role was sort of this um crude talking truck driver right and dwayne was this um you know this u- university student and you see all the behind the scenes you know photos and footage and he's just reading a book the entire times a soft-spoken gentleman um so if he had played the role as initially written it would have um probably come across as forced or you know not as authentic right um so i think that Dwayne did bring sort of his own um you know presence to the film yeah um but you know they were all um you know hippie young people at the time they they are aware of the racial dynamic um uh, you know around them i think that the the impact that the film would have after the fact they, they, they didn't, they couldn't have predicted. Right. From, um, from many reasons. Right. But in the, in this film, I think is really interesting. Um, so if you look at the two sort of strategies we have at play here, you know, Ben wants to stay up, um, you know, on the main floor, uh, really because he wants to find a way out. <laughs> he yeah. wants to figure out, how to extract themselves from this situation. No matter where they are in the house, they're not gonna be safe. And then Harry makes the case that, while well, we are safest in the basement. And so I kind of see the sort of uh, progressive, conservative values on display here. You have Harry, who's sort of the nuclear family, when they're downstairs in the basement, you kind of get this impression of you know of the family values of the time also the cold war you know the um fear of the cold war yep. uh and the bomb they're essentially in a bunker in this situation so yeah. there's a lot of paranoia and just let's put our heads in the ground let's just let's go back and pretend nothing's happening you know this sort of this conservative <laughs> view of Let's just try not to do anything, um, and just focus on self um, pres- uh, yep. self-preservation. Yep. Bearing. Um, while Ben is up there trying to move forward, he's trying to find a way out. Something that can benefit all of them. You know, he he is focused on um, the safety of everyone. Yeah um which makes them more vulnerable. Um, But I think that you know when we look at sort of our our political system here in this country and the two-party system, um there's really (laughs) there are degrees of good and there are degrees (laughs) of not so good. Or I guess we should say effectiveness and and not, you know, um there's the chance to survive upstairs um and and get away and then there's let's just hide out i mean they they would have starved right um if you know if they had stayed and, and been trapped there the the girl who the, the young girl who dies is going to come to life yeah. um so even though the the basement might have been the safer choice I think both scenarios were sort of inevitable. The only difference is that there was a chance they could have gotten away.
1: Right. Yeah, it's uh I, I don't know, it's just you think about uh back then these guys uh these guys meaning uh, and, and women, the you know, this the very small crew they had. Um, weren't, think about how original this was back then. And, and, you know, like when, when we write stories, um, or, or movies or whatever, um, you know, uh, many times, uh, take screenwriters, for instance, they sit down just to write out a story. They are not, uh, many times, not shoving down uh, our throats their own beliefs. It happens sometimes, you know, for good or bad, whatever. Uh, But a lot of times people are just writing in the moment. And I think you're exactly right. George and uh, uh, Jack Russo were just writing uh, this kind of science fiction fantasy story um, in the moment uh you know real post um i mean like just right after civil rights um uh like you said the cold war um you know even uh, the moon landing is right around the corner the next year um and like all these things this culmination vietnam uh this culmination of uh so many things happening in the world and our country um that, uh, influence our minds and our creativity, uh, even though we may not see that. And it isn't until years later, even, uh, that an audience might be able to see that. And I think that's really, uh, the, the great thing about watching old movies, um, and, you know, I primarily watch old movies. I hardly ever watch new movies. Um, you know, my my thing I always say is, I'll get to it eventually. Um, and, you know, because I, I want to watch every single movie ever. Um, but it, I love watching stories or even reading stories from a totally different time period, uh, even if it is just 50, 60, 70 years ago. Um and it seems like a totally different world and I'm able to, uh, kind of project, uh, my feelings and, uh, my, you know, the, the things that I'm experiencing in my life right now onto or into that story. And, uh, that's why I think, uh, Jack Russo and George, um, uh, Romero are, uh, they created this, timeless masterpiece that will forever be relevant Um, and that is uh, really cool but also and even more so super depressing because this is a when you really think about it an extremely depressing movie and it's funny because I I consider one of my comfort movies I can always go to this movie and I feel warm and fuzzy and good but it's i mean it's ultimately an extremely nihilistic movie
0: absolutely and well there's there's value in that though because if um in in times of great sort of political strife and paranoia and when you know like we're experiencing now it feels like there is no you know um good way out of this right um you would think the last thing we'd want to see is something that represents that futility. (laughs) Um, But I I, I think that what a film like this can do is make people feel seen. Um, You know, the film doesn't have any answers for people, but it does confirm their frustrations. It can can confirm their own paranoia and it can become um, sort of a a way to experience those anxieties in a safe um in in some cases silly (laughs) um sort of way you know this is obviously a fantastical um story uh that does not end well but i think people can look at it and say that is how i see the world (laughs) um and so while it'd be nice do you have the answers <laughs> it would be nice if it had a happy ending um i think the next best thing we can hope for is at least to know that someone else is out there who sees the world you know in a similar way that you do um and you know th- these were um socially conscious people who made this film um but the thing that you know watching when it first watching it when it was first released versus watching it now, um, the main difference is context. Um, and I think you know when you're talking about sort of the allure of older films, for me, the, a, 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 um, something that really inspires me and motivates me to go back and and watch older films is the research component to it Mm -hmm. it's a way they become these time capsules you know every film is a product of its time and i think there's so much that you can learn um that if you're living in that moment you might not necessarily be able to see sort of all the components to what was going on in that time or what may have influenced the filmmakers or um, you know, uh, film noir, for example, you know that genre was that label was placed after the fact. People are like, oh, you know what? We have a lot of <laughs> moody films with dark shadows, and <laughs> you know, this they kind of seemed to be somewhat of a piece. Um, you know, but when all those films are individually came out, it wasn't something that people were conscious of, and so I think that is a great thing that we can go back and watch a film and enjoy it. Uh, on his own merit, but I think being able to know what was going on at the time, um, you know, is is a great privilege that we have. Oh um, my
1: god, for sure!
0: Unfortunately, we don't ever seem to learn <laughs> from <laughs> the past. and so oftentimes we'll see we'll see echoes of you know similar themes that that come up and time and time again. But you know. I find comfort and at least knowing that other people are trying to make sense of it too.
1: Oh, for sure. Now, what is it? So, uh, speaking of comfort and, you know, uh, feeling like you're, you're being seen or, or so, uh, I was just kind of running through my head. Um, and I have, uh, some kind of comedic comfort movies. Um, but, I have a lot of kind of dark and depressing comfort movies. Night of the living dead, uh, the ice storm. um, For some reason, I I don't know why, maybe I'm fascinated by the key party. Who knows? Um,
0: (laughs) That's a great movie. I love that movie too. uh,
1: But like uh, a lot of family dramas, I guess Uh, ordinary people, which is uh, horrifically depressing, but I find so much comfort in that. Um, And, you know, I don't, relate to i mean i and the weird thing is i don't really see myself in any of those movies like i don't feel like uh my family growing up was anything like kevin klein's family in in the ice storm or or uh you know timothy hutton i never felt like timothy hutton in ordinary people um but it i i, I just i i want to know what that is Uh, And again, going back to Night of the Living Dead, you know, the credits are rolling at the end of the movie and we're watching uh, these this posse of white men throw bodies into giant fires and they're like mass body burnings. And that uh, does not sound like a fun movie to me uh, yet. Here I am watching it, like I said, for the fourth time in, you know, 10 months uh, for some reason. And and it never, never, ever, ever, ever fails to shock me or move me uh, when uh, they line up that shot and take Ben down. And I'm just like, mm. are you fucking kidding me? Jesus fucking mm. Christ.
0: <laughs> yeah. And they're so cavalier about it, too. And, you know, I think that them that- moment is most um, or, you know, the final scene as a whole is is most can be most related to Vietnam at that time. You mm-hmm. know I mean, that for for these people, it's just, oh, another, um, you know, another enemy to, yep. to kill. Yep. They don't even, they don't view these uh, people on the other side as human. Um, so killing them, throwing them on the fire is no big deal um in fact i think uh georgia said um when it comes to political statements or making conscious political um message in in the story he said that the one that he was consciously uh putting in there was the final scene were those characters right and sort of this mob mob mentality um and i think that's know that it shows i mean i think they are the true villains of the story for sure um you know and and then it blurs the line between well how are they any different um than the zombies you could say they're worse because at least the zombies don't know any better (laughs) they don't you know they they don't have a functioning brain or soul um to to tell them otherwise um and you know going back to what i said earlier about cults is the thing that that scares me most about cults is that just knowing that there are people um well we are all on some level susceptible to leasing out part of our brains our own brains and letting other people make decisions for us right um and you know that that mob mentality is is you know just truly frightening and is ultimately the the theme of almost every zombie movie is you know what is the greater threat the zombies or ourselves
1: yeah it and and like you said uh at the top of this conversation that uh these these people uh romero and crew uh invented that basically because all the zombie movies before this uh, you know, uh, I walk with a zombie, white zombie, you know, though from the 30s and 40s, um were more kind of the voodoo-based or the uh you know, som, what is it, somnambulist uh, yeah. type of thing. Uh but these people, uh like I said, Romero and crew uh said, okay, we're gonna do this thing and then it, look you know 50 years later 60 years later uh it it is its own genre and now we we debate about you know running versus walking zombies and uh you know you know viral and and uh you know whatever flesh eaters blah 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 um okay Adelaide. right uh so i i want to talk about real quick the uh sort of indie filmmaking aspect of this movie um because maybe some people uh listening to this uh wouldn't know that <clears throat> uh like like you had said these were just young people out there making their very first movie And uh, a lot of times didn't even really know what they're doing. They're scrapping together money. Uh, They found this abandoned farmhouse that they, you know, asked this family, can we shoot here? Um, And they the place didn't have any running water. uh, But uh, Russo and Striner, Russ Striner, the producer and uh, George lived in this house. And every morning they they'd bring in buckets of water and take the cat back like. I mean, this is, yeah, it's super crazy. Just the shit these guys went through just to do the thing. And, um, and the, I think one of my favorite stories is how, um, this house didn't have a basement. Oh yeah. And so the basement scenes were all shot in the latent image office. Uh, that, that office in Pittsburgh had a basement. And so they shot the scenes there And so when you watch the movie and they're, you know, pretending to walk, you know, down the basement or or looking or talking down the the basement steps, (laughs) just thinking about like, because they had cut out that frame themselves and said, uh, okay, this is where we're gonna pretend the basement is. And just just <laughs> thinking about that, I think is fucking awesome. Like, to me, like that makes me want to go. Let's go find a fucked up house and just make a make a silly movie because these guys fucking did. You know, they did all this awesome shit with practically nothing. Yeah, um, it's so cool. It's uh,
0: the pa- the passion and the ingenuity. Um, you know, when, and when you have these sort of limitations, you know, you you are forced to be super creative and to come up with, you know, um, creative solutions. I think that it comes across this movie has an energy to it. Like, like you said, George, pointing out some of the jump cuts and whatnot, I I think add to sort of the frenetic energy to, you know, it's just, it's constantly in motion the um camera is often like slightly off kilter like yep. it's you know there's some of the some of the shots are either dramatically angled or or slightly so um and you just it, it's almost documentary in a way totally. that it just it feels like you're there um and of course 1968 color color cinema has been around for, you know, it was already on TV. Yep. So, you know, this was um, uh, partly, mostly uh, budget, yep. <laughs> budgetary decision to to do so, but it does add to the theme, the messages, and the vibe that they're going for.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Well, in the black and white uh, ads, you know, allows them to really play with shadows here and, and how they would you know take cardboard or or you know just uh, random boards they'd find like pieces of plywood and they said to create these shadows like when barbara first gets to the house and she's kind of creeping around the corners and stuff and it's just perfectly beautifully and so dramatically lit uh all they did was they had these handheld spotlights and then somebody with uh took a board and like just punched holes through this board and held it up in front of the light. And it's as easy and simple as that. And you think, Oh my God, look how gorgeous this is. And that's, that's all they did. They had trash and they made it look perfect. Um, or like how, um, you know, I just love like every ghoul, like every zombie in the movie is just like, a you know, someone from town, Um, Or like, you know, the butcher, it's, you know, uh, they're just friends of these people. Um, And even, um, uh, oh shit, who, Judith, it's not Judy O'Day, it's the other Judith, the other uh, young woman who ends up dying in the the truck uh, with her boyfriend, she was like, she was just the secretary at the latent image. And so it's just like, you know, we get whoever we can get to be in this movie. <laughs> and, and for me, like that totally adds the, the non, I think there's something really special, um, as, as a director, uh, or a part of the production. If you can get, uh, some sort of authentic performance out of a non actor, um, it really stands out and it becomes something really special and here George and and uh you know Russo and them uh were surrounded by non-actors and just by their friends and they got you know this these really terrific performances out of their friends something else I didn't it didn't click until watching this last night so uh Chilly Billy, uh Cardilli was uh a horror host in Pittsburgh, and he plays who is he, the cameraman or
0: isn't or, he um the news one of the, the news? Yeah, who's?
1: yeah, one of the news guys, like the field reporter. That's right. I don't know why I didn't realize this, but uh his daughter, is it Linda, played the lead in Oh, in Day of the Day? In day. Yes. I cannot uh, that completely blew my mind uh because out of the three day is actually my favorite me Um, too is it really yeah i love it oh yes i don't know what it is man talk about depressing because it's (laughs) it's kind of like the final one where it's like holy shit everything has really gone to shit here
0: yeah yeah. Uh, against the wall like to the max i mean it's like the (laughs) the end of society
1: yeah crazy um but you know i i just love uh, you know just the the ingenuity that that went into this production, uh, just to get this thing made, um, and because you know, as as a creator, as someone who tries to create, uh, finding that inspiration sometimes is really hard, uh, even though it's right under my nose with something like *Night of the Living Dead*. Uh, you know, I just have to pop in the movie or, or listen to the commentary in the background and think, why, why can't I, you know, <laughs> I can go well, out and you do can. This. <laughs> no Exactly. Well, not that's what I'm saying. Like get, get rid of that mindset and get out there. And it's so, you know, people turn to like self-help books or, or, uh, you know, uh, self uh, help audio, you know, tapes or whatever. Um, and that's, you know, all fine and good. Uh but here I am turning to George Romero <laughs> for, for my creative inspiration.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, you could do a
1: lot worse. Um, okay, is there anything else you want to talk about tonight? Uh I I, I do just want to
0: mention, you know, the, the fact that the film had fallen into public domain. Yeah, let's talk about um, that. you know, big bummer for George and, and company because um, they, they did lose out on on some revenue and the copyright laws and you know obviously has changed since. Um and and thankfully he went on to have a you know a very successful career. But I do think that part of or one of the many sort of serendipitous things to have happened to this film um i think is be is having fallen to the public domain because its accessibility um the, the the fact that it's been able to have a presence in so much film and television um the fact that um you know you can at any time find a free way to watch this film i think that um you know is, is part of its magic in that it is it feels like a a film that is just for the people yes Um, oh yes and the themes that it brings up are so important and relevant and relevant um that uh, i don't want to say it's not it's not a civics lesson (laughs) but it is an important story yeah when it comes to being an American I think yeah. that the the DNA of our country is is in this film and the, our greatest weaknesses are prevalent in this film and you know this is the lesson that we are burdened to learn time and time and time again um so I I, I just I just uh, I think there's something special about public domain in general I have a real, uh, affection for a lot of public domain films um there's you know recently there's been some kind of crazy twitter threads going around about people making the argument that like books should fall into copyright after 30 years of publication which is crazy <laughs> um uh you know and and um the disney corporation is trying uh, you know everything they can do to extend the um, sort of co- copyright window because they don't want Mickey Mouse to right. fall into the public domain, um, but I do think there's got to be some happy medium. There's got to be something in between that doesn't violate, you know, the, the artist. Um, but I do think that there is a, a public good to to some of these just being available.
1: Um yeah I agree I I love how you how you said uh, for the people because this was uh my son Eben is 8 and we showed this to him when he was 7 I believe and um it, it, one it was nice uh being able to show him a black and white movie two a horror movie being a horror guy myself but <laughs> three like you know he was old enough to um, uh, and, you know, I, I'd, I'd like to think Bobby and I are trying to raise, you know, our boys right. And, you know, to be decent, uh, and, uh, you know, uh, love for everybody. Um, and, you know, he had some interesting questions, um, about this, especially the ending when, when Ben gets killed. And I think you're exactly right. I mean, it's, you know, it, it really is a civics lesson.
0: Yeah. It, it, from, you know, learning, you learn about just like direct human, you know, communication skills, dealing with other people. And, but then at the macro level, you kind of see how, um, you know, big decisions are made or the hurdles that prevent them from being made.
1: Yeah. It's uh and you know, George being uh, such, you know, he, such a great guy, you know, it was nice to see uh, him, you know, kind of get what he uh, truly deserved uh, before he passed. And, uh, you know, the legacy he leaves behind uh, is really something special. And, you know, it all goes back to this one little independent movie. And, uh, you know, it's. It's truly something, um, that this, this little movie inspired, you know, everybody, everybody knows this movie. Maybe they haven't seen it, but, uh, this movie has, uh, you know, gotten into people's lives some way or another, whether it's, you know, the walking dead or, you know, even you know the word zombie conjuring up the you know a walking dead person um it's it's all because of this it's crazy
0: unbelievable i mean billions of dollars <laughs> have been made off of those concepts since it's truly remarkable i mean it's a really potent um symbol
1: uh and warning yeah. um for sure Um, okay. Well, let's, let's move on here into, uh, our pairing recommendations now. Okay. It was there, uh, did you go with some sort of theme or formula for your choices?
0: Uh, not necessarily. I mean, it was really difficult to narrow it down to three because they, you know, like this, this film being a a sacred text in a way. Um, you know, obviously having spawned an entire subgenre in of itself, I think that the themes that it touches upon are far-reaching. Um, so I, I personally think that you, there is like a never-ending <laughs> uh list of films that you could um tie into this one way or another.
1: Absolutely, I one hundred percent agree with you. And like when I was trying to think of themes you know whether it was uh you know race related or uh simply you know people stuck together in one location uh my it it started to hurt my head and so I just decided okay I'm gonna go uh 60s grindhouse <clears throat> um and so that was you know fun uh, quote-unquote research getting just to watch a bunch of <laughs> 60s exploitation movies. but uh, let's let's get into it. Let me hear your first choice here. Sure.
0: Well, uh, my first choice is going to be in reference to the sort of punk rock element of making your own film. Uh, and I'm going with Cecil B Demented. Oh, um, the John Waters 2000 John Waters film that is um, about an independent film director and his team of (laughs) crazy punk rock film students um that uh are essentially like cinema terrorists (laughs) they feel (laughs) so strongly about um cinema as a pure expression um and they will do anything uh that it takes to make the film and um it is a crazy movie that i never get sick of um i laugh from beginning to end like every single time (laughs) (laughs) um no matter how many times i see it and i think what um what i love about it and how it relates to no living dead is the energy um that is on display in the film, but also it it captures the sort of insanity that one must have (laughs) to make a film to begin with. The fact that any film (laughs) is made um, to completion is a miracle. Um, And, uh, you know, John Waters is, um, you know, a wild guy, (laughs) and and, you know, an indie icon and cult icon Mm -hmm. in and of himself, I think that there's there's this gene that I think some people have <laughs> that they will stop at nothing. Um, in fact, they, they have no choice, but there's this compulsion to create and to, to make a film um, that says something. And now in Cecil B. Demented, it's to an extreme level. They have guns and bombs <laughs> taking people hostage. They take a movie star, um, hostage and force, uh, they force Melanie Griffith to being in, um, in this film. Uh, the, the director is Stephen Dorff, um, who plays Cecil B. Demented. Um, and it's a love le- letter to film um, in of itself. They all, uh, all the students are, have a favorite director that they have tattooed onto their bodies, Um, you know, whether it's Alma Alma DeVore, Spike Lee, um, William Castle. um, And it's it's like Night of the Living Dead, a comfort film. And I think that in a much more controlled um, way, kind of is how I like to envision how Night of the Living Dead was made. Mm, this yeah. sort of punk rock spirit, yeah. <laughs> um can do attitude, um you know, of just going out into this field and and making something out of literally nothing.
1: Yeah, it's uh you know I love I love John Waters. Um I I, I wouldn't say like I return to his movies uh, often, uh, but his, uh, one, he is such a brilliant man. And, mm. uh, it, when it comes to cinema, I mean, he is God, he, like he is one of the smartest people, um, uh, to listen, talk about movies. Um, you know, he's just, uh, God, he, he knows his stuff. Uh, but again, I agree with you. Like he, uh, just seems like, and you know, uh, we'll get to it at some point here, uh, pink flamingos, uh, in cult movies one, uh, like go out there and just make your thing however you can with whoever you can, with whatever you can. And, uh, again, incredibly inspiring and you know, uh, again, like you know uh pink flamingo's not a film that I return to often, or uh you know i've I've actually seen it just the one time um uh, but i it's it's that punk rock attitude, and so I remember watching Cecil be demented for the first time a couple years ago, thinking like this is fucking cool, this is sort of like John's love letter to himself um yeah. and and I, yeah i it, it is really entertaining and i i mean i can't blame uh cecil for uh oh what's her name in the movie is it honey uh i mean come honey on with yeah. yeah honey you know i you can't really blame him <laughs> <laughs>
0: um it's so I, it's interesting because you know obviously it's, it is an incredibly silly film like all of john water's movies um but it it has an underlining very serious message um you know it's sort of like a spoonful of sugar right (laughs) you know gets the medicine go down i think something with cult cinema in general it's this really special thing where you can take an insane concept or a disgusting concept or a bizarre like they're just you can take something that is just truly weird or um superficial you know something that anyone can be like oh that sounds fun or what the fuck is that <laughs> um but still be able to deliver a really poignant you know resonant message absolutely
1: yeah he's he's a a, a brilliant um and uh you know conscientious man uh, john waters is and uh yeah he's you know I, I don't know i i hope and pray that you know we we get some more out of him um as the years go by now have you uh have you ever attended his uh summer camp thing i have not i
0: would like to go to it someday i i did, went to his um christmas special
1: right uh well and then you've had him with the past two years uh, for the fest right yeah,
0: we brought them to Salem in la- or 2019, and then uh, 2020 we did a virtual um, commemoration of uh, it was 20 20 years since Cecil B. DeMenton was right. released.
1: Very cool. Okay. Um. Okay. So for my first one, like I said, I just kind of went with uh, 60s Grindhouse movies and had a blast going through a bunch of these. Um, so my first one I went with is from 1966. And it's called Aroused, uh, from writer director Anton Holden, and um, you know it stars uh, you know uh, Janine Lennon, uh, Steve Hollister, Joanna Mills, people that I've I've never heard of honestly, uh, but pretty um, simple concept. It's basically a serial killer who is on the loose in Manhattan, killing prostitutes. Uh, you know, sort of maybe a proto uh, New York Ripper type of thing. Um, but Steve Hollister plays detective Johnny who is on the case and uh <clears throat> it is extremely sexy um uh it seems it really freaking risque for 1966 tons of nudity uh there's a blowjob scene um, mm-hmm. like implied blowjob but still like you're watching this chick down on this guy and You know, I'm just thinking, wow, uh, showing this in 1966 is seems ballsy. Um, But there's a lot of uh, great street scenes uh, on 42nd Street, which I love uh, Mm -hmm. 42nd Street, you know, during this time period, this in the 70s. Um, And a lot of those scenes, um, you know, obviously uh, most of the shots are stolen. Um, no permits used. Uh, all kind of guerrilla uh, filmmaking, and of course done with a handheld. And it just really feels like we're looking in on real life because we're, uh, you know, a lot of these kind of exterior scenes, these in uh, insert shots and stuff are we're looking at real prostitutes, kind of waiting for their johns uh, on Forty Second Street um but on top of the nudity and like uh, all the sex in this movie uh there are some brutal deaths um like a really really graphic strangulation uh a graphic stabbing uh you get to see a guy get his dick chopped off which is always oh, which is always fun um by a you know by a gang of girls uh which makes it even more fun What year Uh, did you say 1966 okay that i mean the dick amputation is
0: uh, something i would definitely think 70s (laughs)
1: yeah yeah exactly right um and and the so the crazy thing is when he uh the serial killer is uh, doing his killing the movie pauses it freeze frames and then there's this voiceover of this little kid so it ends up being this flashback the audio only of this kid being abused by his mom you know pieces-esque uh type of thing um or you know maybe uh uh, christmas evil you know it's sort of like these traumatized children who grow up to be bad men um excuse me but it is uh, really fun. It's short. It's less. It's like an hour, fourteen minutes or something like that. And uh, you can find it on YouTube if uh, if you're so inclined. Uh, Aroused from 1966. I totally recommend it. I'm actually watching it right now as we record.
0: Oh, nice. <laughs> I I haven't heard of this. It sounds. I gotta I gotta track it down. Okay, let's hear your second one. All right. Uh, My second one deals with the sort of, um, what do you call it? In TV, it's called the bottle episode where you kind of have all the characters in one central location and the drama comes from that. And I think that, you know, one of Night of the Living Dead strengths is is simply that, is the human drama that comes out of just simply putting humans together and um a film that i think does that really well is the 2007 stephen king adaptation the mist
1: um
0: where you have um there's some uh strange phenomenon obviously the mist is rolling into town there are creatures in the mist um and you know the the members of the small town this, this community um all uh, basically barricade themselves inside the supermarket. Um, You know, there's different people, different class, different um, types of, uh, uh, you know, different ethnicities. um, And you have them, um, one, trying to figure out what is going on out there. um, And the threat though, is more immediate from within. So you have um, uh, Marsha Geharden plays this religious zealot who, um, you know, ultimately uh, thinks that they have brought it upon themselves this evil because of their sin and you know whatever <laughs> <laughs> sort of these extreme um, sort of an evangel- evangel- evangelical beliefs. Um, that ultimately threatens them, it creates this, this rupture and this division, you know, uh, amongst themselves that ultimately proves to be a greater threat. And I think that in Night of the Living Dead, you have that, you know, that dynamic is between really two characters, Ben and and Harry. And in, in The Mist, it's, it's, uh, it expands a little bit more to a broader community. And, and whereas The Farmhouse, it, it relates to sort of the nuclear family and, the, you know, the family unit and traditional values. Um, the supermarket is, you know, is sort of the revolving door or the, the pulsing heart of, of any community. It's right. where, you know, no matter who you are, you have to eat. And so people, um, this, is, this is the one place where no matter what your background is, you're going to come across uh, other people, people who, are, who either look different than you or have a different experience than you and um i think the mist does a really good job both in the movie and the story itself i'm a big fan of the short story um does a really good job of exploring the human dynamics of people under pressure
1: yeah you know i uh so i've only seen it once and um uh of course the the shocking ending which uh, we shouldn't say here for anyone who hasn't seen it um, it, it, it's not because of that it's uh, because Marsha Gay Harden is so fucking good in this movie uh, that I hate her and she is mm. so scary um, mm-hmm. because uh, I mean c- come on we we we're seeing these types of people on the news every freaking day um, and she it, was she
0: was the original anthem masker yeah
1: exactly yeah. Uh, and oh my God, she's the worst. Um, and it just, uh, it's that (laughs) that depresses me. Um, and so this is one of those depressing movies, uh, that I do not find comfort in. Um, but it is, uh, so fucking good. I personally am a big fan of Thomas Jane. Uh, one, he's not bad to look at. And two, I think he's cool as shit. Yeah. Um, and, and especially in this movie, like he's super fucking cool. Um, and then, I mean, you know, these big monsters, uh, monster bug things. Uh, it is a super, you know, uh, fun movie on that end, but God, she scares the hell out of me in that movie. She's terrifying.
0: Yeah. I, I, I think about her often actually. <laughs> like, she's like, haunts my subconscious. <laughs> Uh, maybe is it is because of of you know current times i mean you know i'm i'm a queer person i've had to deal with these people my yeah. whole life um but even more so now <laughs> you, you see them everywhere um they almost seem to be deliberately wanting to fuck things up for everybody <laughs> yeah. um and another interesting connection to this film it was it was not released this way in, in theaters, oh, um, but when the disc was released, they um, have a version, a black and white version of the film. And so it looks like, you know, 1950s monster movie kind of vibe to it. And it is just, it is a great movie for that. Um, you know, there's, there's obviously a lot of science fiction element and it's a small town. Um, and, and it's just another... Uh, fun connection i would love to see these two movies back to back the miss being in black and white because it almost seems like you know while while ben and harry and the rest of them are battling the zombies in the farmhouse you can almost imagine um you know these characters at the supermarket yep. <laughs> under a similar similar situation
1: yeah oh man that's really interesting so have you you have you've seen it in the black and white version
0: yes yeah it's great i I, in fact i think it's better like i think i think he plays even better because it is it it, well it's a monster movie in and and it has a sort of old-fashioned um sensibility about it that i think it really leans into It, it, it kind of um allows the arch um components of the film to just you know really breathe uh and it's a great cast, like any good ensemble. Right. Um. You have just great um, character actors, like, you know, Marsha Gay is definitely the standout. Um. But you have Toby Jones as our frontline worker, our essential mm-hmm. worker. He's, uh, <laughs> you know, he works at the supermarket and uh, he has probably the best, you know, rah-rah moment that, you know, I won't say right. <laughs> for anyone hasn't seen it, but um, and William Sadler, who's just fucking awesome yeah. and everything that he does. He's, he's in this film and, and he's, you know, um, uh, let's say on Marsha Gerhardt inside right. of, of, um, their view of the world.
1: Yeah. It's, uh, so, uh, another kind of fun connection, uh, Frank Darabont being the director, and and how you know he was directly inspired by Night of the Living Dead to bring, uh, The Walking Dead, uh, from the comic book to, uh, TV, and so he you know he's the original creator of the TV show the Wa- uh, the Walking Dead, um, but you know he's another one that I he's such a strong director and writer, um, you know I, I mean you know we're were worse uh for not getting to see more of his movies uh unfortunately i know no and and big pal
0: of you know kings stephen kings did green mile shawshank redemption
1: yeah
0: um although i mean uh it's interesting he also did the majestic and so that that is another movie that kind of harkens back to a simpler time yeah and yeah. how it relates to now
1: yeah that's true um okay so my second choice uh 60s grindhouse this is a little more um more uh, fun and not so grim uh but this is from 1963 and uh director uh steve Uh, secondly, and then, uh, Freddie Francis is uncredited and and he was, you know, uh, a director for hammer did stuff like evil of Frankenstein, torture garden, *Dracula's risen from the grave. Anyways, this is, uh, the day of the Triffids or, um, invasion of the Triffids. Um, but it is, uh, basically, uh, one night, it opens with this like terrific meteor shower and it's, it's, it's a color movie. Uh, but it opens with this terrific meteor shower; these these great different uh, colored lights uh, flashing in the sky. And so that night, uh, that meteor shower has left uh, humans blind, except for the ones that weren't able to see it. Um, and that includes uh, this guy called Bill Mason, who's played by Howard Keel and uh mason is a naval officer who was undergoing eye surgery so he had eye bandages uh on his eyes during this meteor shower so he wasn't able to see it therefore he's not blind um well this meteor shower has also left spores of these killer plants uh you know reminiscent of invasion of the body snatchers uh, another movie that we'll get to at some point uh in this podcast Um, And so these killer plants uh, grow to be like, you know, taller than humans and uh, they feed on any sort of living thing, whether it be an animal or a human. Um, And so Bill Mason and the other sight enabled uh, people must gather the blind uh, or as many of them as they can uh, and then defend themselves against uh, rioters. Uh, like escaped prisoners and then they also have to defeat these killer plants and so you know it's a fun kind of you know 60s uh, kind of a callback to the 50s sci-fi monster movies uh something that you'd see on like one of those horror host shows like like a chili billy uh you know chiller theater or or svengoolie or whatever um you know you kind of get uh there's two really distinctive halves of this movie um, and so the one is sort of, uh, almost like, uh, a zombie movie where all these people are left blind. And so they're walking around kind of like zombies. They can't see, they're walking slowly, arms out in front, kind of feeling their way around. Um, and then you also have this kind of, um, last man on earth type of vibes, you know, uh, the Vincent Price movie, um, but then, like it also explores the idea that uh during this meteor shower, you also had like these big ships out on sea, and you had planes in the air, and so uh we get these scenes of <laughs> oh no of like you know captains of ships and the the pilots in these big commercial airliners uh trying to figure out what to do because they can't fucking see. Um so I mean like that's an interesting thing you you normally wouldn't see kind of back then. Um but then the second half of the movie, so they've they've gathered the people that they can um after after they walk into this big kind of estate where they're sort of uh, gathering the people and, and holding them uh um Oh, the the main guy and uh this little girl go out and like find more people they come back and it turns out these prisoners have escaped and like they're there's this wild <laughs> fucking orgy happening in this house and they're like raping people and it is uh so that's another thing and so they're trying to seal everybody inside of this house and one of the characters has this great line uh, that sounds like something that that would have been in *Night of the Living Dead*. But uh, she says it's like being nailed into your own coffin uh, as they're nailing these doors shut f- to keep these plants from breaking in. Um, and uh, you know, the other thing is the these giant killer plants. The sound they make—it's almost like uh, it sounds like a bong rip. So every time, <laughs> I mean, that's all I just imagine. Like the, you know, giant marijuana plants attacking human beings and the sound they make is this giant bong rip. So, um, you know, it's it's good, silly fun. Um, uh, I, you know, I love love those types of movies. That's great. Um, Okay, let's hear your third one. Um, So, yeah, so this is kind of a cheat.
0: (laughs) It is. A film called <laughs> horror noir um, um it and is. it is a documentary um that shutter distributed and it um catalogs um or, or charts sort of the evolution of uh black characters in horror it's from everything from son of in to um get out And it is uh, based on the Robin Coleman book text um, uh, of the same name, Horror Noir. And as, you know, talking heads like Rachel True, um, Jordan Peele, Ernest Dickerson, you know, talking about um, both the representation of black actors in cinema but also how the films themselves related to various moments of the civil rights movement um and touches upon you know the various different aspects of racism um but it is just i think a really important uh document about um sort of the evolution of black cinema, but um, also the importance of representation and, you know, people in the audience being able to see themselves in cinema, um, both, you know, as, of course, being having that, you know, luxury is is a way is one way to relate to a film or to enjoy a film. um, But it also is a way to validate um you know people's experience and it is also a way for people who don't have that same experience to um understand it a little bit more uh as as roger iber would say that the films were um the, the movies are empathy uh machines yes um in the way that they allow us to imagine ourselves um you know in, in another person's shoes Which I think is an incredibly important aspect to cinema, Um, but it is like two and a half hours. Is it really? really, Yeah, it's really long. Flies by. So much information. It's just. It is just such a pleasure to watch um, because the um, all all the you know Ken Foree is in it um, and Keith David. Oh God, those
1: those two are my favorite in that.
0: Oh yeah, there they, you—you could have a whole movie or a whole show just yeah. um, you know shooting the shit, um, and it's just it's really cool. I love the elements where you see you know the 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 commentators speaking about you know the various clips and themes. They're in an empty cinema, um, so it's just a really cool visual to see. You know, them talking about the films they love, um, and 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 just just to, to highlight a few of the films that they mention. Um, of course, Night of the Living Dead is, um, you know, a, a big touchstone, one of the biggest ones, because of course in 1968 to have a film where the hero was, you know, a Black man was revolutionary. <laughs> it's not something um, the audiences had seen before. Um, so of course that is extremely important. Um, but you have, you know, Blackula, Gondra and Hess, which also features, you know, Dwayne Jones, yep. um, Sugar Hill is a exploitation um, yes. voodoo uh, film that I, I love dearly. It's just, it's, it's really good. Um, Death by Temptation, I really enjoy from the 90s. Of course, People Under the
1: Stairs,
0: Candyman. Um, the craft, attack the block, and uh, you know all the way up to Get Out, which is a film, um, a film that I considered for this, for this this oh, episode, yeah. this list, um, because what I find most interesting about cinema, for me personally, is how every movie has DNA in it that relates to other films,
1: yes,
0: um, films that preceded it or films related to it, um, um, based around certain themes, or were released around, uh, you know, uh, uh, the same time. Um, I often think about, like, the opening credits to X-Men, where you kind of, like, zoom through, like, the, um, you know, the, the, the dna of, of the of the mutants and i think about cinema in that way is that you can just time travel um and universe hop um through cinema and through its influences and um one of the many brilliant things about cat out is that it weaves in a lot of cinema history into the fabric of that film. It, um, in some ways, directly references Night of the Living Dead and subverts, you know, a a lot of the elements from that film. And whereas Night of the Living Dead uh, wasn't intended to be uh, a statement on race, um, Get Out very clearly is and I think, you know, get out as a film that Jordan intended to release and share with everyone with context. I think it was very clear to certainly Black audiences um, and, and uh, general, uh, not general, but audiences at large that do know about Stepford Wives, Night of the Living Dead um you know people under the stairs i think that it's just a master film when it comes to the best horror movie since night of the living dead i would say get out and i think the two films speak to each other uh really in, in really interesting ways um so by seeing horror noir you can learn a lot about black cinema you can also learn a lot about the civil rights movement and how um how it progressed in relation in the in and how it was uh depicted in in film um but it's also a great uh syllabus um yeah, for you to just look at the list of films that are mentioned and um obviously there are there are a ton more i mean this this could have been a, a series this you know this could have been 14 hours long like it's just yeah. um you could go de- you know a deeper dive in, into some films or and in, in cover others uh but it's a great starting point um for anyone really uh to fill in you know the films that they haven't seen or to revisit certain ones with this context in mind um so i, I just i think horror noir is a really important film um and i wish there was more of it
1: I 100% agree. Uh, this is, has become another one of my kind of comfort watches, um, that I put on, um, because for one, um, uh, like you said, it's a great syllabus and I am a big time list maker. Um, and I love having lists of films, um, that I can look at and say, okay, I, I need to see this, I want to see this, I want to watch this, blah blah. blah. Um, so I like it for that aspect, but uh, and this uh, I mean proves my my ignorance here, especially as a, a white guy living in the middle of the country. but this was the first time it was because of horror noir uh, that I looked at King Kong differently. I mm. uh, ever you know I, I saw it when I was a kid uh and it was just a movie about a giant monkey getting taken from his island and climbing the Empire State Tower and you know holding uh holding on to this white woman that he loves uh didn't even think of her as a white woman just holding on to this woman that he loves uh it wasn't until I watched horror noir uh, when it first came out that uh, I was like oh my God, what is the matter with me? (laughs) What, how, how could I not have seen that? Uh, and it's, uh, the, the documentary is so great at, um, you know, not necessarily holding your hand and walking you through this. Um, uh, but God, it completely opened my eyes, um, and hearing, you know, just the way these people, Rusty Cundiff or um, you know, I I love listening to Ashley talk. I could listen to her for hours and hours and hours, or or um uh, I'm not hundred percent sure how you say Reeve do? Is that how you say her name?
0: Gosh, I've I've never said it out loud. <laughs> I've read it a zillion times. Right. Tanana Reeve. Yes
1: Tanana do, yeah. I mean, just the most brilliant uh, scholars on top of uh, the people who were actually in there, you know, will uh, William, uh, uh, again, sorry for the name, but uh, from Blackula, um, just the way these people talk about their experiences making these movies is absolutely fascinating, and again. Uh, you know, listening to, you know, Keith David and uh, Tony Todd and and uh, all these people recalling movies that they watched as uh, kids, Ernest Dickerson watching these movies as kids that have influenced uh, their creative choices uh, today. And it, I mean, it's it's absolutely fascinating. It's very comforting and if you haven't seen it uh you absolutely must must see it there's a brand new blu-ray that just came out and then of course uh shutter um is streaming it but yeah god it's a it's an absolute must watch
0: it is and and as you mentioned i mean you know there's uh, robin coleman's academic Tenerife is uh, an academic and an author as well um and, and you know, you had mentioned Ashley, who's who's a friend of mine. I just, uh, and I'm a, her biggest fan. Um, you know, I love her site, Graveyard Shift Sister, um, and if I followed it for a long time. I encourage everyone to look it up. Um, she's a professor now, so she doesn't keep. The, you know, she hasn't been keeping the site, um, you know, updated. But now it's it's an archive of of so many great articles that she herself has written. That um, other uh, Black scholars and cinema fans have written. Um, it's just, it's a, it's a huge resource. Uh, I'm so proud of her and excited for her that she um, has, you know, gone into cinema as a fan to have become such an important and prolific voice in mm-hmm. contributing to the conversation, to becoming a writer producer, you know, of this film um that is going to be referenced um for, for for all of cinema history it's just it is one of the most important uh cinema documentaries that I've ever seen. Um, and so it's just uh, uh unlike some of these other films that might be comfort films despite being fucked up or depressing um and there certainly are fucked up and depressing elements to horror noir, um, you know, uh, but to see these uh, black creators speak to each other and to their own experiences in the environment that they have set up in that cinema, it is you feel like you're sitting there with them. Um, And, and yeah, we can only view. you know, films throughout our own experience. And so I think that this is, you know, just a, a, a great opportunity for people to see how film has affected others.
1: Absolutely. Well, I think you, you brought it up, uh, when we were talking about night, uh, viewing film as a, also a, uh, a historical document and taking the time and energy and effort to actually educate yourself, uh, on the film and what inspired it and what was going on in the country uh, at the time. And, you know, it's it's documentaries like Horror Noir uh, that really, like I said, um, I mean, I felt like it held my hand uh, and just, God, a, a flash education um, and really showed me... Um, you know, the air of my cinematic ways. And, uh, it's, it's been, you know, it's been fun, uh, using that as a reference point to go and seek out these movies and read about these filmmakers and, and, uh, performers. And it's, it's really fascinating. So, uh, excellent, excellent pick. Um, okay. For my last one, uh, this is straight up 60s Grindhouse, uh, from 1965 and writer-director Russ Meyer. Mm. Uh, this is called Motor Psycho, and it stars uh, Alex Rocco and Haji and Steve Oliver. But uh, it is, motorcycles is about a group of three motorcyclists who are basically raping and killing their way across the California desert. Um, and Rocco is a guy called Corey Maddox, who is the new veter- uh, veterinarian in town who who ends up battling these bikers after they rape and torture his wife. Um, and so... Veterinarian? Yeah, he's a veterinarian, yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, they call him the... Uh, oh, shit, I can't even... Horse Ringer or something like that. I can't even remember what they call him. The bikers refer to him as some nickname. Yeah. Um, Anyways, uh, so uh, Alex Rocco, or Corey Maddox, along with uh, Haji's character, who is called Ruby Boner, uh, hunt down each biker uh, on this trail of vengeance. And it is, uh, this movie is full of buxom women, like any Russ Meyer film. Mm -hmm. And uh, Alex Rocco, uh, you know, people may not know him by name, but you definitely know his face. You know, he's one of those uh you know he's a that guy actor. Um, you know, he's in a lot of kind of Italian crime film. He's in The Godfather, stuff like that. Uh in the 70s and 80s. And shows up in TV uh nowadays. But uh you know um th- you know listen uh y- you have to I don't I don't I don't want to say you have to appreciate Russ Meyer um but uh if you're going to watch a Russ Meyer movie you have to get on board with uh Russ Meyer because you know he's all about you know tits and ass and um you know just getting uh, getting the most bang for his buck uh cranking these uh movies out but uh you know the there's there's a scene where Alex Rocco and Haji they are kind of stranded in the desert Uh, being kind of hunted by the lead biker and this rattlesnake bites uh, Rocco's leg (laughs) and he's a vet so he knows what to do he knows that she is going to have to suck the poison out of this snake bite and (laughs) and Alex Rocco is like you know he's like a manly man right and so it's weird you know him being you said a veterinarian really Uh, but anyway so he like pulls his pant leg up And he's, like, sitting there just repeating, like, over and over. He's going, suck it! Suck it hard! (laughs) (laughs) And, I mean, it is so fucking ridiculous. Um, You know, suck it some more! It is, uh, you know, uh, crazy. Uh, But then, you know, uh, the lead biker of this gang. um, So, what is this? What did I say? 65. So, You know, Vietnam, uh, you know, the lead biker kind of ends up like uh, he's almost like a PTSD uh, post-war case kind of, you know, gone, gone mad and he's going out and killing everybody he can. Um, It's uh, again, you know, if 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 you've seen a Russ Meyer film and you hated it, then I don't recommend watching this, Uh, (laughs) but it is entertaining and again it's only it's less than an hour 20 so um you know you can find it on youtube uh but you know it's uh it's a movie that's (laughs) fine
0: yeah i've only seen faster pussycat kill kill and i i adore it it is unlike any film i have ever seen and where some movies go from you know zero to ten um this movie starts at a time <laughs> <laughs> exactly exactly which is the impression i get from his other films oh <laughs> right totally
1: yeah well we will uh so uh two russ meyer films uh will be on this podcast uh faster Post, get kill kill uh, which i haven't seen yet um and then of course beyond the valley of the dolls which i um absolutely despise and so uh i wasn't like really looking forward to watching motor psycho. Uh, but it is, it's nothing like beyond the Valley of the dolls. It's, I mean, this is like just run and gun filmmaking, uh, you know, show the tits, get the, get the shots and get out of here. So, uh, you know, I, I can appreciate that uh, aspect of it. Um, um, okay that's it Kate. this was a blast thank you so much for doing this i uh you know if you'd be down i'd love to have you back uh one or ten more times
0: oh anytime this was so much fun i really i really like what you're doing and the the whole concept and um it was a really great conversation yeah i'm a big fan of your work too i really like neon badges and i'm glad that you're you're you got a new one gone
1: yeah thank you very much um so uh salem horror fest will uh be uh virtual again this year and uh which gives uh people all over the world an opportunity to check it out and uh kay uh, brings in like i mean like like we had said earlier john waters uh joe dante um uh but then uh uh, these these films um you know you had like you said you had a great opportunity to spotlight uh some some really special indie films and so that was really cool the was it um oh crap strings what what won the audience Mm -hmm. award is that what is it was it called strings Uh, the strings won the the jury award oh that's right Um,
0: and uh the, the audience board was death drop gorgeous that's right yeah yeah, yeah.
1: so yeah. like really i mean you know uh i watched was it vlad the vampire um that was a fun one uh but the strings i mean that was a really special a special movie um but anyway so uh keep your eyes open you can follow salem horror fest on twitter and instagram right
0: yeah, Twitter's were most active, okay. um, and but we'll be making announcements soon, so stay tuned.
1: Cool, very exciting, um, and let's see what else. Uh, you can follow this show uh, on Twitter and Instagram at Cult Movies Pod. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram and Letterboxd at A K Donnelly. That's A K D O N E L L Y. Uh, thank you for listening. Next week, we've got Jacob Knight from Secret Handshake on the show to talk about David Cronenberg's The Brood. Cool, and uh, that'll be that'll be fun. I just watched The Brood for the first time a couple weeks ago. Um, so are you a Cronenberg fan, Kay?
0: Oh, yeah, yeah, he's he's great, he's wild. Uh, I have seen Possessor so many times already, obviously it's his son's film but very much they share the same dna
1: oh my god yeah i was it was crazy uh, because i just watched possessor for the first time a couple weeks ago and i was like uh man yeah i mean like this uh, i mean he is his father i mean you know of course he's his own person but um it's crazy how their (laughs) their minds think alike um okay well that's it Kate. thanks again and uh we'll do it again here soon Thank you. My pleasure.